Good morning. Good morning. I mentioned to somebody this morning at the first service how pretty it is outside, and they said well, that's one opinion. <laughs> so um, it looks like uh, we've already gotten more snow than they said we were supposed to get. I checked the forecast, and they're now calling for three to six. So um, uh, drive safely on your way home. Well, you'll notice up on the screen um, there is. Uh, a slide that basically um, uh, talks about the book that we're going to be reading over the next several weeks uh, in Life Group and here in the church, uh, Alistair uh, Begg, Brave by Faith. Uh, you can go to truthforlife.org if you haven't already done so to order the book. You can also get the study guide there. Um, the uh, uh, book is $6. The study guide is 2 bucks. Uh, so you're not going to get a better deal, uh, but it will greatly uh, enhance uh, our time in the book of Daniel over the next several weeks. And if you're not already in a life group, I would encourage you to plug into one. Uh, see me after the service. I'll be glad to point you in the right direction. We have several groups that meet uh, during the midweek, Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. And so we'd love to help you get connected. God's people um, have always face incredible challenges to their faith. But not since the first few centuries have um, Christians faced such hatred, hatred and persecution. And that's backed up by raw data. Some of you have heard me share some statistics on, on uh, uh, martyrdom in the past, uh, the one that I stumbled across uh, this past week was that, and I didn't realize this, but more than 70 million Christians have been martyred through the course of history. 70 million. And here was the real startling statistic is that half of them, half of that number were murdered in the 20th century alone at the hands of uh, fascist and communist regimes. And so, of course, um, you know, persecution kind of ebbs and flows. Right now, on average, um, more than 300 Christians are killed each month uh, in the world. So these are, are, are startling statistics, and it doesn't even take into consideration the violence that is perpetrated against Christians, whether it be beatings, rapes, um, you know, uh, the destruction of property, whatever it may be. But Christians here in the West, and in particularly here in America, uh, have been relatively insulated against that type of persecution. In fact, when we talk about it, we, we really don't have a point of reference for it. It just seems out there somewhere. Our lives are not touched by that. But as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, things are changing. They have changed, and they will continue to change. I, uh, I realized that um, a couple weeks ago, I, when I gave you some uh, examples of, of persecution, I mean, they were on the, the light side. I could, could have shared others. I remember I shared the one about the woman in the UK that was arrested for praying silently. Um, last week, Mark Ferret actually shot me a text informing me of an incident that just happened recently in Minnesota uh, at the Mall of America, of all places. Some of you may have seen that. But a man was ordered to take off his T-shirt that read, Jesus saves on the front, and I think it said something about him being the only way on the back. Um, but he was told to either take off his T-shirt or leave them all. And when they asked, when he asked why, he says, it's because shoppers found it offensive. I mean, of all the things that you can be offended at and ought to be offended by, that's the thing that they were offended by was that t-shirt. And, uh, and it's just another indication of, 
of, of where we are as a country. There's a video on it that's now gone viral as well. But, um, you know, unless, unless your, your head's been buried in the sand, you know that these things are happening on a daily basis, even here in the United States. So we can no longer live um, the Christian life and proclaim the gospel these days without fear of retribution or outright persecution. And I would, you know, encourage you to, you know, from time to time, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, Go to websites that talk about persecution and Christian martyrs to, to stay updated on um, the, the state of, of events in our world. Uh, I believe at this point in time, there's uh, more than 60 countries that are kind of listed as places you would not want to visit unless you were going there as a missionary. That's how dangerous that they are. So, um, but I believe that the, the persecution that we're starting to experience now is actually a good thing. Because when you look back at through history, you find that the church has always flourished during persecution. It has not done so well in times of prosperity. But when Christians' lives are on the line, you know, persecution has a way of weeding out the phonies. Those people who claim to be Christian, but do not live like Christ. Because you, you, will, not, you will not give your life for something you don't really believe in. You won't. Now, when there's no pressure, you don't know that. But when the pressure comes... When your life is on the line, then you hate that. I don't, I, don't, I don't really believe this stuff. I'm not going to lose my life over this. Well, when we think about what, it, what it's going to take for us to live godly lives in our culture, we need to ask ourselves some questions. One would be, how are we to respond to the world's hatred? Because it's here. And how do we live godly uh, lives in a godless culture? in a culture that hates us. Now, the good news is, is that we are not the first people um, that had to figure out how to live confidently and faithfully in a society that hates God and hates his people. The book of Daniel is an excellent primer on that for us. Uh, it describes a time uh, not unlike what we're living in, although it was written 2,600 years ago, and it was set in a foreign land with a different language being spoken, the book of Daniel actually is a timeless message that is very apropos for us today. So this morning we're going to be, begin an eight-week study in the first seven, seven chapters of Daniel. And by looking at how Daniel and his friends lived in a godless culture, I think we will be encouraged to live courageously and faithfully in our culture here today. The book, perhaps more than any other, shows us how we can live with confidence and courage in a world that is opposed to God and his people. So as with any book study that we've done here at New Life, I like to kind of uh, set the table, so to speak, so that we have a context for understanding uh, where we're going during our time in Daniel. The book opens up with King Nebuchadnezzar's first siege of Judah in 605 BC. So Roughly 600 years before the time of Christ, Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonian Empire, lays siege to Judea, and it is at this time that he takes Daniel and his friends and other prominent citizens of Judea uh, captive and then brings them to Babylon. Now, that wasn't the only time Nebuchadnezzar came against the Israelites. He came again and besieged uh, Judah in 597. This time he took, I think, roughly 10,000 people captive back to Babylon. And then in 586, one final time he came up against Jerusalem 
and he sacked the city, he destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, and he took the remaining population captive to Babylon. Now this is incredible when, when you think about it. Um, I, I put a map up here so you can kind of see a few things. Uh, number one, um, you'll notice that, um, oops, go back, go back here. Uh, there it is. I did it again. I'm sorry. Getting the wrong button each time. All right, there we go. There's Jerusalem. Here's Babylon over here. This would be, you know, modern day Iran, Iraq area. Um, when the Jews were taken captive, they wouldn't travel through the desert, obviously. So what they would do is they would travel up this way and around Aleppo, they would then start making their descent through Mari, following along the Euphrates River to Babylon. And it's in this area here where the Jews were settled. Uh, you'll notice that this entire region uh, was a part of the Babylonian Empire. And so this, this was a great empire that spanned many, many miles there in the Middle East. And uh, Babylon reached its height of power uh, under Nebuchadnezzar II. Um, and uh, Daniel doesn't mention him as Nebuchadnezzar II, but he was Nebuchadnezzar II, which made me wonder who was the first. Was it his dad? No, his dad was Nebuchadnezzar. So where did he get the second from? His grandfather was named Nebuchadnezzar, but some scholars think that perhaps he was named after an ancient warrior king. But in any event, he reigned from 605 B.C. to 562 B.C. And he was responsible for making the city of Babylon the largest city in the known world at that time. It was fortified with huge walls and city gates that were named after Babylonian gods. And the river Euphrates, as you saw, also flowed through the city. So the author of the book is the prophet Daniel, who, whose name means God is my judge. He was a young man of noble birth, and he was probably taken to Babylon in his uh, late teens, perhaps his early 20s, and he lived his entire adult life in Babylon, and that's where he died. He even outlasted the Babylonian Empire. He was still there after the Persian Empire overthrew the Babylonian Empire, and he actually served um, King Cyrus of Persia until his death in 536 BC. And he was most likely in his 80s by the time he died. So the book consists really of two halves. The first half is narrative. And it tells the story of Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And their stories reveal to us how people are to live in a world that is not their home. They demonstrate to us how to live righteous and faithful lives in a godless culture. They serve their pagan masters faithfully and dependably as God commanded them to do. That's an interesting thought. And if you want, you can read about it in Jeremiah chapter 29. But they did it without compromising their faith. They did it without um, uh, feigning allegiance to God. They maintained their faith and their allegiance to the Lord. Now, the second half of the book contains uh, what we call apocalyptic visions. And these visions were designed to reassure God's people that despite their suffering, God is in control. And he is bringing human history to a glorious climax. And therefore, the theme of the book of Daniel is just that, God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty over human history and worldly empires. He raises up and he brings down kings as he pleases. 
and all of the kingdoms of the world are going to give way one to another until his eternal kingdom is established and ushered in. And those who remain faithful to God will be exalted. They will one day be raised to glory and honor and eternal life. So this morning, if there's one thing I want you to kind of hang your hat on, it's this. Because God is in complete control of the events of the world and is in complete control of the circumstances of our lives, we can trust him and we can take comfort in his providential care. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. And uh, Lord, I thank you for your servant, Daniel, and uh, for this book that we get to look at and study and learn of you. And uh, Father, I pray that you would help us do just that, that we would um, see you in, in each of these chapters, that we would marvel at what you did then so that we might have the hope um, uh, that you will once again uh, do what only you can do, that we can trust you and take comfort in you, knowing that you are in control, that you are sovereign, not only over the kings of this world, but Lord, over our very lives. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you be our teacher this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Daniel chapter one. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, verse 2 contains the first of three God-gave statements uh, in this chapter, each of which makes it abundantly clear that God is in control, that he's behind the scenes working things out according to the counsel of his will. The focus here is not on Daniel. It's on the God of Daniel. You see that there. It says, and the Lord gave... Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Now, this is an interesting thing, and only God can do this. But if we're to understand this correctly, what is happening is, is that God is judging a sinful people by bringing another group of people, even more sinful, to judge them. Now, that, if that doesn't tell you that God can use anyone, anytime, nothing will. But that's exactly what God does. He uses a kingdom that's even more wicked than his own people to execute his justice and judgment upon them. Now, if we were living in Jerusalem at the time, we might be tempted to think that what happened happened as a result of poor leadership or perhaps a lack of resources. Nebuchadnezzar, we might have thought, well, he just had a better strategy. He had a stronger army. That's why this happened. That's not why this happened. That, that may have played a role in it. On some level, that might be true. But the text makes it clear that it was the hand of God that brought about their defeat and Nebuchadnezzar's victory. You have to remember that God had warned his people many years earlier through the prophets that judgment was coming, that if they don't turn from their wicked ways, then judgment would come. They had a time to repent. They ignored God's warning. And now judgment has come upon them. Now, I'm not sure that the people living in Judah at the time really understood why this was happening because they grew complacent they grew forgetful of God's commands and his warnings I imagine that there were many who were there in stunned disbelief 
Some of them held on to a vestige of, of their roots, of their relationship with God, and probably thought to themselves, how can this be happening to us? We're God's chosen people. I mean, God, God ought to be showing up about this time and fight our battles for us like he has done in the past. I don't understand. There may have been some people who were so far gone when it comes to their relationship with God that they just resigned themselves to think that the Babylonian gods must be stronger than our God. Stronger than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. See, this happened to them because they failed to heed God's warning and they were blind to their sin. Yeah, you could look at it in the natural and say, well, you know, kingdoms come and go and all of that. But this was God's judgment. And we read that, that God actually promises his people two things. He promised them two things. He promises us two things. And the promises are this, blessing or judgment. He promises those two things to his people. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 26 through 28, the Lord says, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. See, God is faithful to his promises. He will do one or the other. But he will do it because he has promised to do it. Jehoiakim's defeat at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar was not a result of a brilliant military strategy or advanced weaponry. It was because God gave him over to King Nebuchadnezzar. It's as if God took away his hand of protection and opened up the door for him, rolled out the red carpet and said, I got a job for you to do. You're going to take Jehoiakim and you're going to take these people captive to Babylon. Let's take a look at verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. As is the case with many uh, dictators, uh, I think Nebuchadnezzar was a narcissist. Um, he, he, he thought he was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And when you look at this passage of scripture here, um, it seems to, 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 to kind of paint a picture of him um, that is not very uh, pleasant. And that is that he wanted these young nobles who were extremely good looking without any defects or blemish to be in his presence. Why is that? You know, well, if you're, if, if you're stuck on yourself, if you want everybody to know how great you are, you're going to surround yourself with the best of everything. And that includes the captives that you've just conquered in battle. You're not going to bring a bunch of ugly into the palace. You're going to bring the best of what they, of what they had. And scripture tells us that these were young men who were without blemish. They were the smartest and the best that they had to offer. Now, the king then assigned them a portion of, of daily food. And uh, let's look at that in verse 5. It says, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribes of Judah. 
And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Now, if you want to demonstrate total control and sovereignty over a vanquished people, you don't just kill them, because then there'd be nobody left to sing your praises or to fear you. You don't just destroy all the things that they hold dear. What you do is you get them to forget all that they held dear. So how do you do that? Well, first you have to defeat them in battle. Then you have to crush their will to fight back, to rebel. And then you displace them. You remove them from their land, from their families, from their friends, from their homes, from their familiar places of worship. You take from them all that is familiar and you place them in a new environment with nothing to remind them of home. And after a while, as the saying goes, out of sight, out of mind. The people begin to forget where they came from and they begin to adapt to their new environment. But not only do you displace them, you indoctrinate them. You teach them to read and to write the language of the Babylonians in this case. You teach them about your gods. You inculcate them to your way of life and you absorb them into your culture. And keep in mind, this was a three-year re-education program. Three years of training. And once they graduated, they would then be pressed into the service of their new king. Only when they were ready. When they had them right where they wanted them. When they knew that every ounce of rebellion had been drained away and that they were fully a part of the culture. Now, this is brainwashing 101. But it sounds a lot like going to college. <laughs> I mean, really, it, it, it does. Um, for, for many young people, this is exactly what the college experience is like. Um, sons and daughters, um, are they, they, they leave their parents, their siblings, their friends. Uh, they leave familiar streets, schools, and churches. They're immersed in a new culture, and they're, they, 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 it's a, a new culture with, with strange new customs, especially if you join a fraternity or a sorority. And slowly but surely, they begin to forget. Now, rather than listening to their parents or their pastors, they listen to their professors, most of which do not hold to a Christian worldview and are not Christian. But yet they take what they hear as gospel. And they embrace the values of the world around them. So they dispel them. They, they re-educate them. But they also give them new identities. And I'm not talking about witness protection program. You know, if you watch those TV shows, they gave them new names. And, and you know, our identity is tied to our name, is it not? No wonder they tried to change their names. They had beautiful Hebrew names, but their names would remind them of who they were, of where they came from, and most importantly, it would remind them of their God. So they're given new names, and not just any names, but names of Babylonian gods. And in giving them these new names, they were in effect saying, you know, whoever 
you thought you were before, you're not. Whoever you were before, that, that, that person's gone. You're a part of us now. You, you belong with us now. In fact, I would take it a step further. You belong to us now. We own you. We've changed your name. We've given you a new identity. We have instilled our values into you. We have taken you from your home, placed you in some place you've never known before. You're not the same person you were before. You're ours and the truth is, Daniel could do nothing about being relocated, re-educated, or renamed, but he could remain faithful to God. And it may seem strange to us, but you know where Daniel drew the line? With food. He drew the line at food. Let's look at verse 8 and follow. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. See, they could change Daniel's name, but they couldn't change Daniel. They wouldn't change him. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself by eating the king's food and drinking his wine. But why draw the line there? Well, this was more than just another step in his assimilation into the Babylonian culture. You see, food was an important aspect of the religious life of a Jew. They had strict laws concerning what they could eat and what they couldn't eat. The law of Moses basically said the king's food was unclean. In addition, the food that the king ate and, and the drink that he had was probably food and drink that was offered up to the Babylonian deities. And so to eat and drink things offered to idols was a compromise that Daniel was not willing to make. So he asked the chief of the eunuchs for an exception or an exemption. In verse 9, uh, if you'll notice there, you, you have another God gave statement. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So God was working in the heart and in the mind of the chief of the eunuchs to give favor and compassion to Daniel. But it only went so far, right? The man felt for Daniel, but he valued his own life more than Daniel's. See, he naturally assumed that if Daniel didn't eat the king's food and didn't drink his wine, that when time came for him to come before the king, that he would look gaunt or sickly. And, and that's why he said that, why should he see that you're in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age who've been eating the king's food? See, the anticipation was, is this isn't going to turn out well. Not for you, and especially not for me. I could lose my head over this. So Daniel, I love you, but no. Daniel would not take no for an answer. So... What's he do? He proposes a test and he asks the steward, the, the immediate supervisor who was assigned to him by Ashpenaz for a 10-day trial. Verse 11. It says, Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. 
Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. Now, before we go any further, um, let me be clear. What Daniel does here is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. If you are a vegetarian... Good for you. You don't know what you're missing. <laughs> but really, good, good for you. But this story was never intended to become a diet fad for the masses. Right? I mean, some of you know what I'm talking about. Now, it wasn't that long ago, you know, the, the diet, the Daniel diet, or whatever you called it, was, was, was so big. It still is? Okay. (laughs) They're missing the point. Daniel did not choose to eat vegetables for health reasons. Nor did he do it because he was a founding member of PETA. (laughs) He did it because he didn't want to defile himself by eating the king's food and drinking his wine. Now we could ask, well, couldn't he have eaten something other than than vegetables? I suppose he could have if they had had time to prepare the foods the way that they needed to be prepared. (coughs) But I am inclined to think that it was God who told him that this is what he ought to do. And and I think you'll see why in, in just a bit. But Uh, I I think God spoke to him in a vision or in a dream and told him to do this thing, to to request to eat vegetables and drink only water. And and we're going to see why in a minute. Um, The steward, in any event, accepts, decides, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll give this a try. So verse 14, it says, so he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and their wine and that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. The key to understanding why Daniel proposed a vegetable diet, I think, is found right there in verse 15. It was a miracle. I mean, think about it for a moment. How do you explain the fact that in just 10 days, he came before the king, and and they they were fatter than everybody else. I mean, that's what it says, that they were fatter than everyone else. They were better looking. They looked healthier and had more meat on their bones than those that were partaking of all the wonderful protein the king had for them. You see, I I think God spoke to Daniel and and said, I'm going to do something here that is is not natural. This is not, I mean, I know, I've, I've tried dieting. I'm not really good at it at all. It takes a long time to lose weight. Um, I am told it takes a long time to actually gain weight, a considerable weight. My son eats and eats and eats, and he doesn't gain any weight. I remember when I was down around the wonderful figure, uh, the wonderful number of 155. I, I weighed about 155 pounds, I think, my whole life. And I ate, I mean, oh, I ate junk food, I ate all sorts of stuff. I couldn't gain any weight. But yet here, this young man who was younger than my son is now, in 10 days, he managed to put on enough weight to look better than everybody else around him. I think it's a God thing. And I think that was the whole point in eating vegetables. It wasn't to start the Daniel diet craze. Well, let's continue looking. Verse 17 says, oh, by the way, 
It says, for the, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all the visions and dreams. That's the third God gave statement in this chapter. And, and, and again, you, you see that God is in control. He is the source of all true blessings. God gave these young men knowledge and understanding in every branch of literature and wisdom. He didn't just give them knowledge and understanding of literature and wisdom. He gave them knowledge and wisdom and understanding in every branch of literature and wisdom. And I love the New Living Translation. Uh, it reads like this. God gave these four young men an unusual appetite for understanding Excuse me, not appetite, aptitude. He gave them an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And as I've mentioned already, and he gave to Daniel the ability to understand all kinds of visions and dreams. So we come to the end of the chapter, and we read that at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king and in every manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. What an amazing testimony this is. That of all of the king's wise men, in all of his kingdoms, there wasn't anybody like Daniel and his friends. They were 10 times better than all the magicians and all the enchanters in the kingdom. Now Daniel and his friends are certainly worthy of emulation. But remember, that's not why Daniel wrote the book. Daniel didn't pen these words so that we could be like him. He wrote this so that we might know God, that we might want to be like God, and that we would trust him even as Daniel trusted him in a very, very difficult spot. He wants us to know that God is in control. That we can trust him in the midst of our difficulties and trials. And that God will provide for us. We can rest in that. I love what Alistair Begg says here about Daniel. He says the message of Daniel is essentially this. That God is a sovereign and all-powerful God and he is in control of the world and the nations of the world. And in spite of the present conditions, our gaze must be upon his kingship. We're going to be tempted to take our eyes off Christ. We're going to be tempted to look at the circumstances of life, how things are not going the way that we want them to go. But we can't afford to be distracted. We need to keep our eyes focused on him. And understanding that, that God will take care of everything else. The overriding lesson of chapter 1 is that God is sovereign over all. He is sovereign over the kingdoms of the world. And he is sovereign over the affairs of his people. God gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar and preserved Daniel and his friends. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the eyes of his masters. God gave all four men learning and skill in all literature and wisdom and to Daniel understanding in all visions and dreams. Even in exile, God did not abandon his people. God was working to bring about their salvation and ours. God is faithful. He is faithful to all of his promises. 
including his judgments. He was faithful to the promise that he gave to Abraham, that in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. How is that going to happen if God's people are eradicated from the face of the earth? He preserved them, even in captivity, so that 600 years later, the Messiah would come into the world as promised to deliver not only his people, the Jews, but also all who would call upon the name of the Lord. Daniel, in many ways, is a type of Christ. He went down to Babylon. Jesus came down from heaven to earth. Daniel was taken from his home. Jesus willingly left his. Daniel, Daniel faithfully served God in a foreign land. Jesus came to the cesspool we call earth and lived as the suffering servant. Daniel's obedience to God led to the preservation of many lives, which we will see in coming chapters, and to his own exaltation. Jesus' obedience to the Father led to his glorification and the salvation of many. So if you've been taking notes this morning, you probably have some application already written down things that God is saying to you in light of this passage. Remember, God doesn't give us his word merely to inform our minds, but to transform us so that we might apply what it is that we have learned. And if you're here this morning and you are not yet a Christ follower, um, that's the first point of application. You need to repent of your sins. That is, you need to turn from them. And you need to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He's only a prayer away. But you need to be honest with yourself that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And I believe that Jesus, you died for me on the cross. Your blood was shed so that I might be forgiven and receive the gift of eternal life. Tell God that this morning, that you want him to save you. And he will. If you've already done that and you belong to Christ, uh, again, you probably already have application you've written down. But I want to share just a few with you here before I close our time. And I'll be brief. But if you know Christ, you need to know your lines. Where will you draw your line? Daniel drew it when it came to food. And I suppose there are a million places we can draw our lines. We need wisdom to know where and when to draw those lines. And we won't all draw them in the same place, i.e. vaccinations, masks, whether or not you will refer to people by their preferred pronouns, whether you will attend a gay wedding, whether you will pay dues to an organization that uses the funds for purposes that are antithetical to God's. Know your lines. Second, don't compromise your convictions and commitments to God. You know, Scripture tells us, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Don't compromise. And related to that, three, Resist the temptation to defile yourself. And there are lots of ways we can defile ourselves. Consider what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Fourth, trust God to honor your commitment and faithfulness to him. Trust him in that. And lastly, understand and accept, <clears throat> accept that God may lead you somewhere, someplace, 
or into some difficult circumstance or situation to share the gospel. God may call some of you to a foreign mission field. Some of you may be called to downtown Columbus. But God may call us to a place where we will have to stand tall and risk losing our lives for the sake of the gospel. Folks, we're facing incredible challenges as Christians today, but we can live with confidence and courage because God is in complete control of this world and the circumstances of our lives. Let's continue to trust him. Let's continue to take comfort in his providential care. As we close um, this morning, I want to do something a little bit different. I just want to give you the opportunity to respond to God in prayer if you so choose. Uh, normally, I would just close in prayer, uh, but I mentioned last week that we'd like to start finding other ways to involve you in this dialogical uh, work that we do on Sunday mornings where God speaks to us and we respond to him. So if God was speaking to your heart in any way, um, you know, pray back to God uh, in, in, in the next couple of minutes. Uh, just offer up a response to God in prayer. Uh, if nobody prays, that's fine. Uh, but after I feel like we've spent a sufficient enough time here, I will close our time in prayer. So let's do that. praise you today for your sovereignty as uh, we are reminded from your word that we can trust you and um, that you'll never forsake us or leave us alone. Lord, I thank you for giving me confirmation whenever I need confirmation, whenever things are going on in my mind. And I pray and ask questions. I thank you for your wisdom and just always letting me hear confirmation different things with you. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant, Daniel, for the example that he and his friends are to us 2,600 years removed from them. Lord, help us um, to stand firm, to be courageous, to live for you. Um, Father God, we ask that you would do a deep work in us so that we too might have the favor of those around us, that you would grant us favor, that you would give us um, um, a listening an ear and open hearts when it comes to sharing the gospel. And Father, we ask that you would just glorify yourself in us and through us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.